Abolition. Abolition. Today. I am an abolitionist. An abolitionist. I am. I am an abolitionist. An abolitionist. I am. I am an abolitionist. There we go. That's right. I am an abolitionist. 
It has to start somewhere. It has to start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? You just heard Rage Against the Machine, Guerrilla Radio, and you heard from the anniversary of the Abolished Slavery National Network, the chant, I am an abolitionist. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Brother Yusuf. Uh, I'm you know, still sick, but that got me fired up. I'm feeling it. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. So after a few weeks away, we are back live. We'll be joined tonight by ASNN's new lead organizer, no stranger to the show, Savannah Eldridge, as we enter into the final eight weeks of abolishing constitutional slavery in five states. This is week one. So it's been a few weeks, and there's so much to talk about. Priority number one is the Freedom Five. There's only eight weeks left, and we want to make sure you know what you can do to help make history and permanent change in the nation. Without a doubt, our plan is to win in all five states, Alabama, Vermont, Louisiana, Oregon, and Tennessee. Of course, we'll have incredible new music mixes, and we'll bring the ancestors' voices back to life for a new generation on our Bridging the Gap segment. So if you're a slavery abolitionist, don't miss a single one of the next eight episodes of Abolition Today. The future depends on you. Let's make our envisioned future a reality. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Mac, Max, it's been a few weeks, brother. Good being back on the air with you. Uh, yeah, man, it's, it's good to be back. You know, there's so many things that happened. I guess the highlight uh, of them would be, of course, the anniversary of the Abolish Slavery National Network, which was hosted uh, by Abolish Slavery Vermont and the Vermont Racial, Racial Justice Alliance, Brother Mark Hughes, who's been on the program before in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we had a wonderful time. Man. We had representatives from four of the five states on the ballot there, as well as nearly the entire administration team for the Abolish Slavery National Network. And uh, we put on some, uh, you know, a presentation. Uh, we talked about where we're at, what we're going to do, and we had Sister Travel Rain come in and do spoken word um, throughout the per- presentation, which was extremely powerful, as I had warned in advance. Um, and it just was an amazing time. We bonded a lot. Uh, we got that rejuvenation that we needed to keep it going. We strategized and uh, harmonized. <laughs> And some of us caught uh, the cooties. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I came back. Uh, I didn't get it in Vermont. I think I got it in South Carolina. I might be the one to take it to Vermont. Maybe my grandbabies gave it to me. Uh, but I was negative when I left. Anyway, when I came back, it took me out for like three weeks. As you can hear right now, my voice is very shaky. 
I already had right. lung issues before I got the cooties, and now after, things are so much worse. So every now and then, I might have to go mute while I'm coughing and choking. But uh, as you mentioned, brother, we got eight weeks left. So all hands on deck, even if you got a half a max, it's better than no max. <laughs> you know? That's right. Uh, and, you know, I can't <clears throat> really talk about the Abolish Slavery National Network anniversary event without just going ahead and bringing in Sister Savannah Eldridge in. She is our new lead organizer for the Abolish Slavery National Network. Brother Kamal uh, Allen, after so much hard work, has decided to go to law school. So he started law school uh, just right after the anniversary. Uh, he's there as well as a few other members of the ASNN. They can see the future, so they're moving towards that goal. Uh, right. She's also the founder uh, and CEO of Be Frank with Justice out of Texas, Sister Savannah Eldridge. Welcome back to Abolition Today, Savannah. As always, it's great to be here with you this evening. Um, thank you for the introduction, Max, and um, wishing you a speedy recovery. I know uh, it's going to take a while, but I hope you feel better soon. Um, yeah, so that, uh, the intro clip uh, was so inspiring. Of course, I was there in Vermont with the rest of the team, and mm-hmm. that was actually Kamal in his uh, exit speech, um, encouraging us and reminding us all that, uh, you know, why we are doing this work, right, that we are all abolitionists. And on the same token, like, we're all in this together. And I think that's important, especially in these final eight weeks, right, um, that we're all on the same page and we're all and understanding that we're all working toward the same goal. Word. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience, which uh, had to be unique because, as I've mentioned and you said, like you're moving into a new position here in ASNN, so it's your vision that we're depending on and leadership. And I know that mm-hmm. you've got so much already on your plate. You're a member of a number of different uh, governing bodies, including the uh, uh, NAACP out there in Texas and a few others. So I know that it's taken a lot for you to take this step forward. But tell us a little bit about how you feel and uh, the event in Vermont. About the event in Vermont, um, the first African landing day was beautiful. Um, I'd never been to Vermont. Scenery was beautiful. And the team was so welcoming, so inviting. So shout out to uh, Vermont Racial Justice Alliance for their hospitality and just being so welcoming and inviting um, to the rest of the team. Um, But our anniversary celebration uh, was one of the first times, especially since COVID, that we were all able to be in the same space to get together. Um, I hoped that more folks were able to join, but, you know, we were able to see FIBO, too, and that was inspiring because I hadn't seen them since June. Um, but there's something about um, being able to um, be in a think tank and a shared space and just get back to our core principles. And for me, that's important, especially because, as you said, like, I'm a part of different organizations, uh, different campaigns, different movements. And even though, you know, they all are similar, when I, and when I'm in the space as a representative and the lead organizer for Abolish Slavery National Network, um, I want people to understand that my goal is to end constitutional slavery. 
um, and in these last eight weeks to make sure that people who support our work are getting folks to the ballot. Um, so that's my goal. Um, right now it's really hard to think about, like, next steps overall for the org uh, because our priority right now is the Freedom Five and to make sure that we are connecting with our support system to educate people about the ballot initiative and making sure that they are spreading the word and, and getting people to the ballot. So right now, as far as ASNL, that is our priority, uh, whether you're a network partner, whether you're a listener to the Bottle Slavery Net, uh, the Abolition Today, um, or, you know, one of our personal Facebook followers, please bring people in because this is the part where we need our community. We need our people. We need our support system. You know, I don't want to say the hardest work is done, but the legislative component is in place. We need people to use their voice at the ballot, no matter what you feel, uh, at the polls, excuse me, no matter what you feel about voting, we need folks to vote. And so if, if, you, if you have any question about the ballot initiatives, I will give you some information later today. But for me and for ASMN, that is our priority right now is the Freedom Five. And as Yusuf said, these last eight weeks, making sure that people get out and vote for these ballot measures in those five states. Amen. Thank you for that. Um, you see, that's why you're the lead organizer. <laughs> you stay focused on what you got to do and stick to the mission. Um, there is some information that's been coming out from some unexpected sources. We've been getting a lot of support uh, with articles and uh, media, and even Ben Crump has got on board. So he's put out what he calls is making a voting plan, blames the people that slavery is still legal uh, through the 13th Amendment as well as state constitutions. And he talks about how on November 8th, the Freedom Five and names them where the voters will be able to remove those. And then they have different memes. You can find them on my page at Max Parthus. You can also find them at uh, Abolition Today on Facebook. But they also have a, a list of each state individually when, what, what is on the ballot, what it means if you vote yes or no. Uh, they have important dates like voter registration deadlines in that state, early voting in that state, and of course, the general election. And then they have a link for you to register to vote. And you should go and register to vote if you're in Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee, Oregon, or Vermont. So I was pretty surprised to see that come from Ben Crump, and, but I'm happy he did. Uh, it shook up our brother over there in Alabama. He's like, Ben Crump trying to take over Alabama. <laughs> it was pretty funny. But nonetheless, we take our help when we can get it. We need it for everybody right now. To get out, that's and right. Vote. You said that's it right there. We need everyone to get out and vote. Yeah, you know, we don't not, care who you vote for. It, exactly, it's never about a candidate. It's the issue. It's the single biggest issue in the history of the United States. There's been no bigger issue on the ballot anywhere than abolishing slavery. That's how big this is. So big that even uh, Senator Dick Durbin tweeted out. I'm going to bring up his tweet real quick. This was from this past Friday. He says, it's shocking to think that we are still working to abolish slavery more than 156 years after the passage of the 13th Amendment. 
but we cannot stand by. That's why I've co-sponsored Senator Jeff Merkley's abolition amendment to end the exception and ban all forms of slavery. This is what we're talking about right here. When, for new listeners that may be hearing this for the first time, trying to figure out what's all this buzz that's coming around through all these different media outlets talking about slavery is on the ballot, slavery is on the ballot, because of the exception clause. The exception clause written inside of the 13th Amendment has allowed slavery to continue for 156 years. So that's why it's on the ballot. This is why we're going to be talking about it heavily for the next eight weeks on this program and on all of our social media outlets like Abolition Today Facebook page, uh, Max's page, my page on Facebook, uh, Max Farthas on Twitter, uh, at Abolition Today, the number one on uh, Twitter for myself. We're going to have all of this information everywhere as we go forward, Max. Yes, and some of the articles that came out, like Essence Magazine, Essence.com, did something on the Freedom Five. Uh, saying that the initiative on the ballot is part of a larger criminal justice reform movement aimed at prison labor. See, they made a mistake there. That is not what it's about. <laughs> but in any case, <clears throat> in, in, in an attempt to address the loophole in the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery and involuntary servitude when it was ratified in 1865, advocates a push to abolish, uh, officially abolish slavery and involuntary servitude, as well as reshape the prison labor system. Yeah, there's been some confusing stuff coming out from some of these articles. They don't really understand, so they went on after that to start quoting Ava DuVernay uh, in her groundbreaking documentary, 13th, where she said everybody knows the 13th Amendment of the Constitution says there should be no more slavery in the United States. Most people don't know that that is a lie. Right after it says there should be no more slavery, there's a little clause, a little loophole that says accept. Mm -hmm. The exception is accept if we think you're a criminal. So that was Essence Magazine. Um, Also, there was something that came out from 103.5 The Beat. That was pretty cool. My interview with China's Global News came out. Uh, You know, Sam did one a few couple, about a month ago, and just the, the, the Instagram uh, video alone had like 3 million views. So it's reaching a lot of people. And my interview with GlobalTimes.cn came out recently. As a matter of fact, they quoted uh, me about, you know, they asked me, how did this affect me? And I said, the situation with slavery in the U.S. is disappointing. Having experienced it personally, my family's been decimated, my community has been destroyed, which would take us generations, if ever, to try and recover from. Because The same circumstances continue to exist every single day. People of color, black people, the natives, and Hispanic people are suffering from crimes against humanity. Literally, they are shooting us in the streets. They're criminalizing our lives. They're hunting us like wild animals. Then then they're putting us in these hellholes called prisons and jails where you wouldn't put a dog in order to punish us and to take away all our rights. They actually quoted that right out of me, man. I was surprised. Like That's something normally the papers would put out there. Uh, and then the uh, Illuminator.com did something uh, in regards to Louisiana, but about all five. And then also the federal amendment's been doing some work, like the MoveOn.org signature petition. They delivered over 200,000 signatures uh, through MoveOn.org. 
to uh, repeal and replace the 13th Amendment. As a matter of fact, let me bring in Savannah on that. She could tell us a little bit about what the federal amendment uh, efforts have been doing since Labor Day. Savannah? Yes, thank you, Max. So the federal campaign is actually doing well. Uh, they launched their Except for Me campaign um, on Labor Day, and it's going over the next 13 days. Um, and the basis of the campaign is to humanize what um, slavery looks like and what modern-day slavery looks like. I mean, it seems like people um, who aren't who feel who don't know that they're close to the issue have a difficult time understanding. Um, what it means when we say that slavery still exists in modern times. Um, so there's a series of videos, and you can go to uh, Worth Rises um, Twitter um, that have been posted uh, with personal stories about how uh, people are impacted by slavery, whether it's because they've worked in the prisons or because they have loved ones in the prisons, and um, they talk about financial hardships. Um, as a result of having, you know, trying to support someone who is in, you know, incarcerated and um, not able to, you know, financially take care of themselves. I think that part alone, like, people are, you know, they disassociate with because a lot of people think about, like, the criminal justice system or, or prison or jail, and they think, oh, the three hots in a cot, like, people are getting everything that they need, not thinking about, you know, the extension to the outside community um, that that places on, you know, families and caregiver role strings and things like that. But the federal campaign is doing very well, and um, they actually have um, a mural in Philadelphia that was just put out, and um, it's beautiful. They, um, I can't remember the I, I think that was the a organization protect, that they worked with, but... Yeah, it's um it says um slavery was abolished. The 13th amendment abolished slavery except for me and it's a beautiful um mural um and it's a beautiful um artistic expression about, you know, what modern day slavery looks like. They've really been just rocking and rolling um with content and reaching communities as Matt said the petition is doing very well. I'm in quite a few of the listers um and a part of other organizations that are a part of the federal um, uh, coalition or the end the exception campaign, and so the information is being shared widely. And I think that's what we need to do for the Freedom Five. Um, we need to build momentum through action. So you know, when I say you know, people ask how can I support this work? I mean, it's just as easy as sharing the information. It's just as easy as you know, if someone has a question about it and you're not sure how to answer it, connect them to us at ASNN or Max or myself or someone who can answer those questions and field those questions so that they're comfortable about making the decision to go and vote, you know, yes for these uh, ballot initiatives in November. Thank you, Savannah. Uh, you know, that's a good segue because uh, all states are not equal. <laughs> The South has its own individual brand of racism and denialism and oppression that goes on over there, and they have to deal mm -hmm. with things in a somewhat different way. Uh, so before we talk about it, let's listen to a track, a little mix I got with TYP's Rick Strom. He's reading a statement by ESPN's Bomani Jones, um, and it was in reply to something one of his guests said on the program to him. It's very much self explanatory. 
Uh, we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. Abolition, Abolition. Today. As an entertainer, he wasn't on country music. Have you ever watched? He wasn't on MTV. He was on Fox News. News. What's wrong with stating your political opinion? Well, Paul, that's my question to you. Just so you guys don't agree with it, and then you start hiding behind all these elitist attitudes, which people from the South are sick of. Okay, Paul. Let me jump into the question. Paul, I'm as southern as you are. Ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Jones would write afterwards, I am incensed by people who have made whiteness part and parcel of being Southern. After all, how could the stars and bars be defended as Southern culture without taking black people totally out of the equation? To be told I'm not a Southerner by a man who has never met me, who then didn't listen when I told him where I was from and remarked, yeah, right, when I said he was no more Southern than him, and for the record, nobody in my family is from no damn New York. Yes, it does make me angry, and it angers me because I love the South like nobody's business. I've never lived north of I-40. I clown Southerners who wear Yankee hats, for God's sake, yet forever and ever, when I see representations of the South on television, it's nothing but a bunch of white dudes. When it's time to get a southern perspective on things, you think anybody's going to call me? The Old South isn't just the stars and bars, seersucker suits and bluegrass or whatever else. It's also people who look like me, white t-shirts, jazz, and outcasts. We are here, too. We are here in larger numbers. We are southern, and we are disregarded by the people who claim to love the South the most. On top of that, we are American. And given how many people remove us from their idea of America and the South, it's pretty friggin' insulting that so many of those same people have the audacity to question the patriotism of the president, me, or anyone else. He was talking about Obama there. But when I emphatically say that I am Southern and, by simple extension, American, I am told, yeah, right. It doesn't hurt my feelings, but it tells me what time it is. I deserve much better than that, Mr. Feinbaum. It's time, y'all. It's time. It's this thing that I'm holding in my hand, this telephone, this camera, it is quite powerful. Um, social media is powerful. We can do something with this. If we want to change, we can really, truly make it happen. You know, we sit out here and talk about, oh, we need the next so-and-so and this and that. No, you don't. No, you don't. Start in your own home. Start with you.
Today.org. You just heard the Young Turks Rick Strom read a statement from ESPN's Bomani Jones in response to Paul Feinbaum's uh, stance as not including blacks in the Southern narrative. And that was followed by Salam Remy, Is It Because I'm Black? His rendition of the song featuring Anthony Hamilton, Black Thought, CeeLo Green, Selena Johnson, Stephen Marley. And the voice you heard speaking over the phone with Sandra Bland. Man, let me pass it over to Savannah for her first comment. Mm-hmm. Wow. I was just sitting up here listening to the, the voice. Just, I, I just, um, I don't even know what to say, guys. It's just, it's like here we are again, right? And anytime you guys play not the song, but the words, like these quotes, it's like it touches myself so much because it's like we have these conversations and then, you know, here we are again talking about the same thing over and over and over and still nothing has changed, right? Decade after decade, like movement after movement. And it's like what is it going to take for us to be heard, um, for us to have to not like yell and stomp in the streets for us like what is it going to take for us to truly be heard um not just in our own communities but like in this country and so that it just resonates with me like there's still so much work to be done and the song the voice like the struggle like you just hear it in those words and so um it's captivating and it just it's just a reminder that like there's always work to be done. No matter what it is we're fighting, there's always something to be done. Word. Um, thank you, Savannah. That's right. Uh, I was uh, I was pissed about that, too, because I see that. You and me have seen it personally recently, where somehow or another, whiteness is part and parcel of being Southern. And so you have to appeal mm-hmm. to the white Southerners and not express the situation because of the crimes against humanity happening in a racial way, but you got to get them to be involved where they feel like it's something that affects them directly. And one of those ways in the South is to uh, organize religion 
because this literally is God's work. Uh, and many white people, quote unquote, will do it because it's God's work. They won't do it because, you know, black people being incarcerated at 10 to 1 or 5 to 1 or 6 to 1 or being shot in the streets or have police climbing up on the hood of their car when they call for help at 911 and shooting them through the windows and stuff like that. But they'll do it because it's God's work, which is, you know, it hurts me to know that that's how people think. Like, it's very selfish. You know, it's either God or me. I'm not doing it for Negroes, <laughs> you know? Uh, well, I hate to be a bad, okay. bad dude, but, uh, you know, our people are on the same page. Like, you know, it's it's not just white people. Like, there are African Americans, you know, in these communities who have, you know, been impacted in one way or another or affected, you know, whether it's justice involved or, you know, um, whatever reason. And they, too, feel like it's not my problem. You know, and so when we have people like that who know about the problem and and choose or opt not to um, do something about it, you know, what incentive is there for anybody else um, to try to help our our community when we're not? Right. You. You know, to uh, answer Savannah's question, what is it going to take? It's going to take the people getting their behinds out to the polls and voting to end slavery in the five states that are on the ballot this year. That's the start, you know, because the talk is always, you know, they want to end this or end that, all the things that are just like little symptoms of slavery, not the root cause itself. So all of the people that are out here banging the drums talking about uh, abolish the prisons and abolish uh in fact max you wrote something really good this week and i want to i want to quote you all right because it 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 really sums it up i just have to find it so you wrote it's been really difficult getting people to understand that removing constitutional slavery exception clauses or adding anti-slavery language to a state constitution as a standalone issue. It should not be tied to anything else. It's a real simple argument. Slavery is legal in your constitution right now. We want to make it illegal. That's it. That's the whole message. We shouldn't group that in with wages, reparations, systemic racism, police brutality, prosecutor misconduct, or anything else. Those are all separate issues. Yes, they are connected. Like congestion and muscle pains are connected to the flu. It's a maxism right there in case y'all didn't know. The key is we're not here to treat symptoms. We're going right for the cause. Guess what happens to the symptoms when you eliminate the cause? And that's what we're talking about right there. When you eliminate the cause, all these other symptoms are going to go away or they're going to be severely crippled and be on life support. So this is what it's all about right there. So that would be my answer to your question, Savannah. Yeah, I, I, hey, I definitely agree and I appreciate that. But I also think, too, it's important for folks to know what that looks like, right, when we're talking mm-hmm. about any 
institutional slavery, like what does that look like? Because, again, you have some people who don't believe in the power of voting, where um, clearly the folks who are opposing um, amending the Constitution do because they are moving to make it harder for people to get out and vote. So there is power in the vote. If there wasn't, then people, um, elected officials and organizations would not be working so hard to silence the people who need to get to the ballot, the black and brown people who right. are impacted by, you know, these um, poor and horrible pieces of legislation. Just, I mean, I this past, I don't know, at least year or two, some of the bills that have come out have been straight up, we don't like you, we don't like your, I mean, they couldn't have said it any plainer than that. So, and just, you know, here in Texas, I mean, they work so hard to keep people away from the polls, restricting the number of polling places in, you know, minority communities, ending drive-through voting. You know, we can't vote um, online like some states can, and all that is intentional. So, I mean, to Max's point, you know, not just in the South, but um, particularly in the South, but, you know, not just here, there are other things going on. Like, people understand what it means to end constitutional slavery. And they may not come out and say it directly, but there are things being done behind the scenes. So it's important that we know you know, we have to be on the offense. We can't always be on the defense. And then once something happens, we're going to try to overturn it or change it. We have to recognize that, you know, these are the steps leading up to, you know, any constitutional slavery, whatever it is our goal is, and we need to be on the offense all the time, knowing what that's going to look like and putting things in place to get it done. Yeah, that's uh, abolition today. That's is, right. Uh, beat them like Beat a MFR with another MFR show. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's we a, have to be preemptive. We, we. That's right. Preemptive. Preemptive Speaking strikes. Of, there are times when we have to be reactive, but you can also be preemptive if you're a student of history. And as a student of history, I know that this beast that we are fighting against, this ancient evil, uses the same tactics over and over and over again. So now they're going back to the Willie Horton uh, strategy where they demonize black people once again and tell you about how they're murdering everybody and how the crime rates are so high because the left and Democrats are in bed with violent criminals and rapists who they want to free so they can go out and rape and murder innocent uh, white people across America. That's the narrative that they're putting out, including videos and billboards all across America. They are uh, lumping in any racial justice efforts uh, that we have with other left-leaning ideologies in order to use uh, straw man arguments and many other logical fallacies. They just put out a video from an organization called Citizens for Sanity. And it's anything but. They say that their goal is returning common sense to America, highlighting the importance of logic and reason, and defeating wokeism. Wow. <laughs> like defeating wokeism. Um, they're playing this it's video crazy. not only in America, but also in the home country of Fox News' owner, Rupert Murdoch, uh, in Australia. They're playing it over there on their right-wing media as well. And it shows 
black people shooting each other in the streets and uh, mugging people and just beating people for no apparent reason and kicking kittens and stomping little puppies' heads on the curb and stuff like that. And it's telling people how the crime rate is so high and that if you vote for these progressives with things like ending bail or releasing people from jail or letting out those who have been wrongfully convicted, then you're asking to be raped and murdered because that's what they want. Uh, Commentary? Yeah, like you said, it's history repeating themselves. And for those who aren't familiar with the Willie Horton situation, that was Reagan's campaign, you know, when he was running against, uh, who was it, Walter Mondale at the time? Walter Mondale, yeah. Mike Dukakis. It was one of the two. Uh, Walter Mondale. It was Dukakis. It was was Mike Dukakis. Yeah, yeah he, he had little things like this, and then, of course, there was the welfare queen one as well, going back to where you talked about the uh, person talking about undeserving minorities. Yeah. You know, so uh, talking about that welfare queen of the 80s that Reagan always spoke about, you know, turns out that it was a white woman who was running around doing that, and we see that just repeated last week where – you know, former NFL quarterback Brett Farr, you know, has caught up in a welfare scandal where he made a deal with the the governor of Mississippi, you know, $5 million welfare scandal. So a lot of times when they're talking about these things, they're also projecting at the same time. You know, so just wanted to bring that commentary in on it as well, but it's definitely – happening nationally everywhere you turn around even in places that you're not even normally hearing news about any type of crime or any of that anything of that nature now they're talking about the rising rates and violent crime in places where you know they have like zero percent or point zero 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 one percent you know violent crimes but yet they're talking about the rising rate of violent crime so you're definitely right about that, Max. Absolutely. Yeah, there's chats everywhere about rise rates of violent crime. You know, our our governor here is notorious for um, speaking about, especially at the height of pandemic, you know, that crime rate. And it is true, uh, especially here, we have had a rising rate of crime, but, you know, it's the reporting that's not sufficient. You know, they're not talking about and, – and don't get me wrong. When they're reporting about violent crime, they're specific to point out whether or not someone was on bail while the crime was committed because yep. that's another avenue that they're going after to show that we need to keep people in jail or prison and forever, right? Like lock them up and throw away the key type thing. But these fear-mongering tactics are – they're they're elusive because they're not showing where, you know, people actually got the services, they got the help that they needed. They're reporting on people who had no support systems. And really, if you looked at prisons the way that you looked at schools and you evaluated them the way that we evaluate our teaching, you know, our education system, if someone goes to prison with the hope, quote-unquote, hope to be rehabilitated and does come out and is unsuccessful or does not have positive outcomes after prison, then we need to be looking at what's going on with the system they're in, right? Because, 
clearly there was a disconnect in bridging the gap between what's going on on the inside and what's going on on the outside. And, you know, what does violent mean, right? Because in Texas, you know, someone could commit a simple robbery and not be labeled a violent crime. And so, you know, it's very, it becomes, there's blurred lines when you say, you know, this is a violent crime versus that. It doesn't always mean if somebody's convicted of a violent crime that they harmed another person. It just right. it depends I, on the law where the person is, you know. In Alabama, and so that's another thing, ago. you know, reporting things as violent, where you know a person may or may not been have been harmed, but because of the statutes and the states that they're in, you know, it is an aggravated or you know violent offense. In Alabama, a few years ago, every property crime was considered a violent crime until they changed it because of this. Like all these people were being charged with violent crimes who had only uh, property crimes or were accused of property crimes. So, yeah, you're right. It's not always a violent crime. And also, there's some responsibility for America to take care. You know, we've just been through the largest gentrification process in American history, where so many people lost their homes, where they were living, uh, were displaced, lost their jobs, people died in their families left and right. And if you think that the only thing that will cause, that type of uh, event will cause is poverty crimes that include just things like stealing food from a store to eat or coat in the winter because you're cold. You're crazy. It, it leads to violence as well. People lash out. And not to mention the environments that they're living in and the example that's being portrayed by the United States itself lends to this type of violence in the street. What do we do every time we think we found a terrorist we just go bomb them, no matter whose country they're in, killing them and innocent people around them with no judge, no jury, just an executioner. And you expect anything to be different from your citizens? You glorify that BS every day in your films, your music, your movies, all over the place. You can watch a movie today and see more murders in the first 20 minutes than your entire generation of family members have seen collectively in their life, just watching one movie. That has to have an effect on people. And I dug a little deeper into the Citizens for Sanity organization, which is a super PAC, which is putting out this propaganda. And I found out it's run by a man named Ian Pryor. He also leads something called Fight for Schools, which is a political, political action committee. Um, and he also has something called Common Sense Candidates, who oppose critical race theories. And he's been... Um, like Fox News is promoted as the local Virginia parent. But he also worked for the, the Trump administration from 2017 to 18 as the deputy director of public affairs at the Justice Department under Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So this is orchestrated at the very top to use this type of propaganda to create fear of black people and by association of Democrats. It's horrible. Matter of fact, I got a song about it. Want to hear it? Here you go. Here you go. Uh, <laughs> actually, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and play a track about this right here that we're talking about. And this is a white nationalist by the name of Dolphin Claude Felter on white media. You know, they have these right-wing medias, I believe it's called, uh, right-wing watch. And he's talking about undeserved, undeserving minorities. And that'll be followed by the staple singers. Why am I treated so bad in a live performance? 
You're listening to Abolition Today with Max Parkers, Yusuf Hassan, and we're joined today by the ASNN lead organizer, Savannah Eldridge. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. There is no racism in this country. The only racism that is happening is against whites. They hate white people. They're replacing white people. They attack whites. It's time for whites to stand up. It's time for whites to be proud of who they are, to embrace their heritage, embrace their history and understanding of what they, what it means to be a white man in America. The fact that you and your heritage and your ancestors, they built the modern world. They were pioneers. They were explorers. They were construction workers, miners. They were the educated. They were the influential, they were the philosophers and scientists of a bygone era. We must never forget that, and we must be happy with that history. There's no reason to pollute it or attack it or mistreat it. Myself, as a white American, I'm very proud of my history. I am proud of the country that we built. I am ashamed of where it is going and who is taking it over. Undeserving minorities? I mean, is that, are you going to say that's racist? Sure. Undeserving minorities taking over this country?
down in Mississippi where we came from. I used to go to church where we were having good old revival meetings. And we didn't have electric lights like we have here tonight. We didn't have the piano and the guitars and the organ. We just clapped our hands. Like some of you have done over there. Yeah. I believe you've been to church too. Yeah. All right. But oh my Lord, did we have service. And some evening I did a little late going to church. I began to walk a little fast because I didn't want to miss nothing, you know. The old people would be singing the familiar hymns over here. And then we'd bow down around the monospect and begin to pray for the little boy and girl. And when he would begin to pray, some old sister well in the amen corner would begin to moan. And I didn't understand that language. And I asked my parents when I got home, I said, what did she mean by morning? I don't understand that. The old man said, son, when you moan, even the devil don't know what you're talking about. Every once in a while now, when I get a little worried, my burden get heavy. I steal away to myself and I begin to moan. Yeah. Like, if you're, if you're, your self 
I guess your self-reflection or your self-evaluation um, lends you to have like a bias or negative opinion of another race, then that's where you clearly have the problem, right? Because it's okay to be proud of the truth about who you are, um, but but if it's not yielded or wielded in truth, then, you know, it's a fallacy. So um, that was my biggest problem is with that, especially hearing um, what he said about being ashamed about who's taking over the country and basically um, under, undeserving minorities. Like, um, what what would lend, lead anybody to that conclusion, aside from someone who is of a separatist mindset, right, that just because of um, the way that somebody looks that they don't deserve to be in a particular place or they're underserving. So um, that's what, I guess, bothered me or stuck, stuck out with me the most um, is that, you know, pride is one thing, but um, there's a, a thin line between pride and prejudice. There really is. Yes, uh, it certainly mm-hmm. is. Um, all right, let's go ahead and bring in our caller. Um, eight seven six two. You're on abolition today. Yes, I'm excited to be that you guys are back in live. I'm good <laughs> to hear your voice, Max, and it's so good to hear your voice, Yusuf. And I'm just glad for the knowledge. I wanted to say what you guys were talking about last time about how there is all these media reports talking about how, um, especially Vermont, because Vermont's on the ballot, and Vermont is recognized uh, for being one of the safest states for years. But recently, we are constantly seeing reports of how Vermont is all of a sudden having gunshots and murders and all these things that are just not like Vermont. And the Vermont Criminal Justice Council has, by the the state auditor, reported that, you know, police officers have not been doing their parts as well. So they're – and most of the time when you look at the media, the people that they're saying is so dangerous with harming Vermont are these African-American people which make up 1% of the state. <laughs> so I just think that you guys are right on, and especially with um, Vermont being on the ballot, we need to definitely pay attention to it and definitely vote against it and vote for Prop 2. So that's all I have to say. You're right. Um, while I was there in Vermont, I learned some things I didn't know and saw some things I wish I hadn't saw. One of the things I learned was the uh, heroin addiction level there at one point, Vermont led the world in heroin addicts, like little old Vermont. I didn't know that. And then while I yes, was there, I know that the price to live in Vermont is, is huge. Uh, just, you know, renting hotels or rooms or getting rent, mm-hmm. just huge. And while I was there at the uh, camp center with uh, Brother Mark, uh, a white guy was standing on the corner with his shirt off, and he had a sign asking for help. And I guess his family was down the street with his kids, and they came in, and the wife was explaining to Mark how he's suicidal now because he lost his job, they lost their apartment, they got these kids, they got nowhere to live, and they need help. You don't think doing that to people is going to lead to violence? Like, you know what, just fucking boom, 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 boom. I don't care, you all die. You know what I mean? Because you're not showing any concern for the people. You think the answer to the problem is incarceration which is what Joe Biden just did recently. He repeated the, 80, the, the 94 crime bill, uh, three-strike laws and all that. He repeated it again, but with triple mm-hmm. the funding this time, and again asking for another 100,000 cops. 
Now, how do you think that's going to end? These 100,000 cops got to justify their existence and how are they going to do it? By incarcerating the mentally ill, drug addicted, uh, people who are just suffering from poverty or mm-hmm. all the homeless. Just gotta, right. Yeah, the homeless. That's how they're going to do it. So you're showing you don't care for people. No wonder they're going off into violence. But if you really want to know about why violence is spiking, just ask the last five sociopaths that went out murdering people why violence is spiking. Mm. And, you know, we look on top of that. So there's an article of a woman who just came home from prison in Connecticut. And she was charged $249 per day for her incarceration. So she came home. She's 50. Yeah. She's 58 years old, so she owes $83,762 to cover the cost of her two-and-a-half-year imprisonment for drug crimes. And, you know, how do you expect a person to recover from that? Here, a personal situation I had, you know, I was incarcerated many years ago, and I filed uh, my tax return last year and come to find out I had a 15-year lien on me for public defender services while I was incarcerated and come to find out that I had like this $6,000 lien on me. So any money that I thought I was going to be getting back, you know, for a tax return, went to that. And so you look at these people that come home and they put in these situations, they're trying to get their lives back together, and you say, $83,762. was this woman ever going to pay that back? And just like you just said, Max, you know, this stuff leads, you know, it could lead people over the edge, over the edge. Yeah. And in some states, as we were talking about earlier, where, say, for instance, in New Jersey, a person can go in the store and shoplift something, you know, toothpaste, deodorant, things that are easy to sell. You may go in the store, shoplift that. And if someone, a store employee or a security grabs their arm and they snatch their arm away from that, that is considered robbery in New Jersey. They're just for snatching the person's arm, when you snatch your arm away and try to run away, that's considered robbery. So, and that will go down as a violent crime and the statistics of violent crimes. So you have a lot of people that are sitting in jail, in prisons, for crimes like that. You know, where it's poverty. The person went in there to steal something to try to sell it or steal food because they're poor. And so, again, this is criminalization of poverty. And then Uh, slavery is going to do away with that. Marquis used to run the Poor People Campaign, and now he's a slavery abolitionist. So it does – there is a connection. And – and it's so real because, you know, Vermont especially, the people that they're trying to show that they're criminal and poor are the black folks, which make 1% of the state. 1%. We uh, talk about right. Vermont. We call it the uh, the Vermont uh, butterfly effect, right? Because they were the first yes. ones to create this exception clause. But those butterfly effects come in other ways, too. And the Clinton Clinton crime bill was one. The one that I just mentioned has been duplicated with three uh, times the budget this time. Uh, Let me give you an example, right? Uh, You had these habitual offenders uh, laws. 
in Alabama, there's a man there who has been in prison for like 30 years for stealing $9 because it was his third strike. And again, the violent crime was that he mugged somebody for $9. So he's spending the rest of his life in prison with no hope for parole. Now, when did these three strike laws come into play? Why did suddenly all these states say that we need this law, these habitual offenders? It came from the Clinton Crime Bill, which had uh, a number of sus- substantive criminal co- provisions. They had $16 billion in funding for prisons and police as long as you did certain things. And so starting uh, with 1993, I think was the earliest one in Washington, D.C., who knew what was coming, every other state out of 25, that had 24 that have it, passed those laws, those three-strike laws, habitual federal laws in 1994 and 1995. All of them suddenly did it because they wanted that prison money. See, they've turned prison into an economic development program. Some of these states, counties, and cities couldn't exist without their prisons and jails. And the jails take this slavery aspect outside of the 13th Amendment because now you're treating people who have never been convicted of a crime as property. Look at what they're doing in California right now in their jails. They're so damn overcrowded in California's jails in L.A., that at one point they had over 245 people who were in the uh, processing room where they have all the chairs and they process you mm-hmm. who have been yeah, booking room, chained to the chairs for a week or more, not allowed to go to the bathroom, urinating, defecating right there where nobody's cleaning up, not being fed, not getting their medication. These are people who have not been convicted of a crime, and yet they're chained to goddamn chairs in a jail's booking area, 250 of them nearly. Uh, And this is in California. And what's the answer for California? Because they discovered that more than half of those people who were in the jails were there for mental illness uh, issues. So what's the answer? Buy more jails. Billions of dollars. Somebody got to make the bricks. Somebody got to handle the phone. Somebody got to make the uniforms. Somebody got to pay right. the electric and water bill. It's an economic development program that just siphons money out of the taxpayers' pockets in order to further slavery and involuntary servitude, even beyond the limits of the 13th Amendment, into the jails, detention centers, immigration centers, where people have already lost their humanity and they haven't even been convicted of a crime. Uh, I want to pass the mic over to you, Savannah. You may be on mute. Sorry, guys, I was on mute. Absolutely agree with you, um, Max. And just, I mean, we can't say enough about the like the economic wheelhouse of, you know, the justice system and how it just. Um, you know, it's it's turning um, based on the work of our, I mean, our neighbors, our brothers, and our sisters. And I mean, you you mentioned California. There's sim- similar stuff going on all across the country. You know, here in Texas, they've got contracts with, you know, jails and other states to house people rather than trying to decarcerate and use diversion programs. You know, they're sending people um, to other states 
to have them, like Louisiana, we have uh, they have a contract in LaSalle with Harris County um, to keep people there pre-trial, um, who probably could be better served in the community. But you know, again, you know, these are the people that are keeping the operations moving, um, and the system in and of itself relies on that that labor. It relies on you know the work, unfortunately. Yeah, Uh-oh. and on top of – oh, go ahead, Max. No, go ahead. You know, it's happening on both ends. So as they're creating these new prisons, then there becomes this lust of locking more people up, and you start having situations like what recently got uncovered in Chicago with seven people who served decades in prison, had their murder convictions overturned over alleged abuse, by a Chicago cop. And quickly, seven people said that a Chicago detective framed them for murder, had their convictions tossed Tuesday in the first mass dismissal of murder charges in modern U.S. history. The six men and one woman were part of a group of at least 70 people who had claimed for decades that Chicago Police Department detective Reynaldo Guerrara along with his partners and other officers, had coaxed witnesses into making false identifications, pressured child witnesses into pointing out the wrong suspects, invented anonymous tips, and battered suspects into making false statements. So this is what ends up happening. There becomes this pressure on these officers to make these arrests, to make these arrests, and then they just start making things up. Because this is how they keep their positions, this is how they get their bonuses, this is how they get their promotions. So it creates this whole lust on both ends. It's the money, and it's also those that are looking for the accolades of making these arrests, that they just start making up their own rules or bending the rules that exist. what they do. Uh, You know, speaking of incarceration or slavery going beyond just the prisons and labor, there's a story that came out of Vermont just recently where they were saying that the Winooski School District, a $62 million school expansion, has been in the news for being behind schedule and incurring rising costs. But what they don't know is that uh, the officials in the project used over $400,000 worth of incarcerated labor, worth millions in real labor costs. On average, making less than $1 an hour. And they were using youth detention uh, labor. So these were kids working for an hour, a dollar an hour, $400,000 worth uh, working on a $62 million school. So you're talking about a dollar an hour adding up to 400000 Imagine what that's worth at $15 an hour, minimum wage. So yeah, even in little Vermont, they're performing crimes against humanity and exploiting slavery. And Winooski is the only school that you'll ever find in the state of Vermont that has 21% black students. <laughs> that's why I asked in Winooski, because that could never happen anywhere else, because because it's mostly Somalian kids, Tanzanian kids, Kenyan kids, Congolese kids. They all live in Winooski. That all makes mm. sense. And that's probably who's in their detention centers, and that's who they're working. Uh, just like they said in Louisiana when we had Reverend Anderson on, and she said, this is going to blow your mind. But in uh, mm-hmm. 
Louisiana, in their parish there, 100% of the juvenile detainees are black men, black young black men, 100%. Mm-hmm. They couldn't find a single white young kid who was guilty or a criminal of anything. 100% of them are black. Uh, so we see how this racial component always ties into this whole thing. You can't really forget that. Um, and I never will, uh, because as I said in that interview, my family has been directly affected. Savannah's, Savannah's family has been directly affected. Yusuf's right. family has been Everybody here has had and myself. <laughs> you know, And yourself. Uh, it, it's touched us in ways that go beyond prison walls. Uh, nobody really talks about the cost of the family and the community that you're destroying when you're taking all these young black men and women out of their communities, the breadwinners, uh, the future. You take them out and, and they just collapse. And you tie that in with systemic racism issues, uh, redlining and denying loans or overcharging our loans or giving out loans for houses to people who don't know damn well, can't pay the bills, you know, and then just mm-hmm. taking the property from them. All that tied together has long-term effects, which is why I said if we were gorillas, they would know exactly what would happen to us if they did these things. But as human beings, nobody seems to have a freaking clue of the long-term effects of what you were doing. Yeah, that's my rap. Uh, listen, I want to open the phone lines if anybody wants to say anything. 515-605-9814. 515-605-9814. If you're already on the line, just press 1. If you have a question or a comment, I also want to give a shout out to Brother Sean Darling. Got to meet him and his uh, young son, Zach, while we were in, in Vermont. And that was a highlight for me. What's up, Zach? Little Darling. <laughs> All right. Definitely shout so, out to Sean. Yes. Uh, Sean's an avid listener, too, and he's uh, a great organizer and supporter. So, yeah, shout out to Sean. And also, like, before we end the show at some point. I just want to uplift the work that's happening in all the states, but specifically in the Freedom Five. Um, I know it's, you know, this is crunch time, right? And, you know, people have been making, you know, visits to their legislator. They've been, you know, and now they're working on trying to get people out to vote. But, you know, shout out to the organizers in Vermont, Vermont Racial Justice Alliance, and the whole team, Corinne, Mark, Christine, I got to meet Isaac and mm-hmm. so many people that, you know, we've Zoomed Super forever. Heroes. But it's so, you know, it's different to be in community with these people. And, like, I just, I felt like everybody was family. But, you know, also Louisiana Curtis was there. And they, uh, not Theta, she didn't make it, but Jeannie from Jeannie. Tennessee. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, just mm-hmm. again, to just, even though we were there for a, like in a workspace, um, we were all in community together, and it was amazing. And I just want to shout out everybody who's doing this work. No exceptions. Tennessee, Oasis in Oregon, of course, Vermont Racial Justice Alliance, Decarcerate Louisiana, um, and I'm missing somebody. What's, what's the organization? After Glasgow, yeah, Tops and Pastor yeah. Glasgow for their work in Alabama. Um, again, you know, just want to raise everybody up um, ahead in these next eight weeks and just thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Amen. Uh, we got a caller. Let's bring, mm-hmm. bring in. Let's, yeah, let's bring in 8222. You're live on Abolition Today. Uh, who's speaking? What's your question or comment? Good evening, family. 
Reverend All right, Mark Hughes. Brother, Reverend Mark Hughes. Uh, you must have heard us talk about you. <laughs> uh, I've been on the whole time. I think I came on Re- about 15 minutes into the program or Reverend something like Mark that. I just wanted to just uh, let you know that I was the, listening. The lead organizer for Vermont Racial Justice Alliance, who the man behind Prop 2 in Vermont, which will end slavery in the place that started it all, constitutional slavery. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to stay on. I, I just wanted to just uh, give you, you and yourself uh, a shout-out. I heard your Korean, um, and also um, just uh, want to lift up my sister, Savannah, uh, tonight, uh, just listening to her and, and uh, processing all of the good stuff that I'm hearing from the program. I just wanted to just let you know, um, you know, we love you. We're here. Uh, Christine and I are moving on to another call right now, but we've been we've been on for – Almost about an hour or so. Uh, we've enjoyed wow. the program, and uh, we definitely, um, definitely want to um, just lift up abolition today and the inspiration that y'all brothers are bringing to to the nation, to the world. Uh, thank you for your work. Thank you, brother. Uh, with that, thank said, you. I want to go ahead and dedicate the next track to our family out in Vermont. This is a a mix with MSNBC's Ali Belchi. Uh, talking about the song, None of Us Are Free, as well as the reality that none of us are free while black Americans live in fear. And it'll be followed mm-hmm. by, of course, Solomon Burke's version of None of Us. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parker, Yusuf Hassan, and our guest today, Savannah Eldridge. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. None of us are free if one of us are chained. Those are the lyrics of a song recorded in 1993 by legendary singer Ray Charles. Those lyrics were revived in the chants of so many freedom-seeking Americans in the streets. Since the death of George Floyd, I've been in the streets of Minneapolis, Chicago, and New York City with protesters, almost all peaceful, most angry, all hurt, all confused, but all of them certain of the thing that comes in the second verse of that song. If you don't say it's wrong, then that says it's right. We've got to try to feel for each other. Let our brothers know that we care. Got to get the message. Send it out loud and clear. What the protesters are saying in shorthand is that this isn't a black problem. It's an everybody problem. If one among us is not treated fairly by the police or as they try to vote or in our courts or by the economy or in the wages that they are paid or the health care to which they are entitled, then none of us are. If you accept that premise, then let us acknowledge that we are not free. Nearly 13.4% of Americans are black and they live their lives in fear. They follow a set of unwritten protocols literally to stay alive. That sounds like an exaggeration and to many white Americans the concept of lynching is something from the history books. But lynching, in which the accused gets no due process, has never really ended. George Floyd got no due process and he died at the hands of police. Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia got no due process. He was killed on February 23rd of this year by two vigilantes who allegedly thought he was a burglar. Breonna Taylor got no due process on March 13th when police used a battering ram to get into her apartment and then killed her in a shootout with her boyfriend who lived with her and had a licensed firearm. The warrant the police had was for the wrong people in the wrong place, yet Breonna Taylor is dead. Yesterday, she would have turned 27. Congress has passed a new lynching law, but it's stalled in the U.S. Senate by Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, 
who worries that people who just assault but don't kill during extrajudicial attacks might get swept up in it. We wouldn't want that now. Regular racists being swept up in laws designed to protect American society from them, despite the fact that black Americans face deadly harm at the hands of police and society to this very day. Protest and the vote are all that are left when the odds are stacked against you. It's not for black Americans to bear this burden alone, to speak out against the violence against their communities and the systemic racism they face, because until they are unchained, none of us are free. Now I swear, you salvation isn't too hard to find. MSNBC, Ali Velshi, none of us are free while black Americans live in fear. And that was followed by Solomon Burke's classic, None of Us. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parthis, Yusuf Hassan, and our guest. She's not really a guest. This is home for her, Savannah Eldridge, the new lead, the new lead organizer of the Abolished Slavery National Network. That just has such a nice tone to it, Savannah. I'm, you know, full, full. <laughs> I'm over here and laughing I'm really, on me. 
<laughs> yeah, and I'm really, I'm really excited that you're in that position because I just want to, you know, pick up all of the women that are in the movement historically, especially now because so many men are in the prisons and it's just like so many women out here I see all over social media fighting for the release of men. You know, when we look at you and uh, Demita and Gina and Jamelia and uh, – it's, it's just so many. I mean, we could run down this huge list of uh, women, short women, too. <laughs> That's another thing that I noticed. There's so many, and uh, tribal. We can't forget tribal. We have Karen on the call, you know, all under, I want to say, five foot four, and they're just out here putting up this big fight. So I want to make sure you all get your roses for that. Uh one thing I wanted to listen to is with listening to this, none of us are free. And what started coming across my mind is I'm thinking back to the third, the 13th amendment and the emancipation proclamation and how these documents were supposedly to protect us. That's what they were supposedly out there for, but they didn't protect us because they left the loopholes and they tricked us. So here we are, all these years later, still trying to get that protection from, as it's talking about, you know, in the in the clip we just heard, none of us are free while black American lives are in fear. You know, that we have to constantly live in this fear because at any moment they can come violate our Sixth Amendment and exact, you know, the judge, what is it, the uh, judge, jury, and executioner style on us with no Sixth Amendment. You know, they can murder us, they can enslave us at any given moment, and that's what we're out here fighting for. And this is why we have the Freedom Five on the ballot, because we want to end that exception, all of these exception clauses in these five states and the other states to come in the upcoming elections. So I just wanted to say that to you, Savannah. I appreciate you, Yusuf. I'm not five four though. I'm a. I got a few more inches, but I definitely agree. I've met some very powerful women uh, in this fight, um, and I mean, you know, it's it should be no surprise, right? Like a lot of uh, the women in this movement are mothers, their sons, their wives, you know, and you know they have a vested interest, you know, in making sure, sure. that. No, our communities are healed. So, yeah, I, I, I want to lift everybody else up, too, and thank you so much for that. I have a little bit of a rant about what we just heard, just a little bit of one. Um, Go this for was, it, brother. Al, this was, uh, of course, left media, Ali Velshi, in 2021, saying that he'd been all across the country and that none of us are free while black Americans live in fear. Well, since then, we've had programs here titled an uncivil war documenting how the fear mongering is leading to mass murderers of black people where people are going to the supermarkets killing old women and men uh and just right. you know it's putting us in a position where we're being demonized like this video i talked about earlier from the citizens for sanity uh we're being demonized as monsters it's like somebody's putting lightning in a bottle again you know, and this is a uh, birth of a nation all over again uh, being mm-hmm. shown. So they're demonizing the hell out of us, and we are living in fear. 
because you're telling them that we're some kind of monster that is murdering and raping everybody and that we need to be stopped and that anybody that supports us, like uh, progressives or Democrats or whether it be Republicans, are in bed with criminals who are murderers and rapists. That's the narrative that they're putting out about just normal people. So, yeah, right. that's my little bit of a rant. Any comments on that? Well, real quickly, Max, like I'm glad you pointed that out about um, some of the strife that people who support these, specifically like these bills and these movements go through. And um, I, I want to really highlight, like, the legislators and the elected officials who are carrying these bills deserve all the support in the world for getting out in front of these very important pieces of legislation. Like, we know the value of them, but a lot of times people don't understand what that means to get in front of something like that and what these elected officials are putting on the line. Yes, it's their job, but there's a lot of influence one way or the other. So we really, you know, when we go to elected officials and ask them, you know, not just do they support what we're doing, but are they willing to put their name behind it? Then right. we have to step, you know, step up and not just say we support them, but we have to really do all that we can to support their work, because a lot of them are going through a lot just putting their names on these bills. So I just wanted to, to say that also, like, and when you mentioned, like, you know, people, you know, not getting, you know, when they start supporting the work, you know, have, facing certain um, issues, the elected officials do also, and sometimes they're swayed to, you know, either remove or relieve themselves or just not publicly say what they really want to say. So I think, you know, we as, you know, a collective can do a better job with just letting them know we're here for them and we appreciate that they are supporting our efforts. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, we don't always get a win, though, with them. Like in Louisiana, what they're going through right now with their uh, sponsor of their bill. I don't even know if I would want to talk about it, to be honest with you. Probably left, yeah, left on the <laughs> but yeah. Well, I want to shout out uh, to legislator Brian Tina from Vermont, who was the one that introduced Prop Two. Um, and also, he, Brian is me. He was my therapist for years, so he's heard me as a black woman struggle to figure out how to survive in this state. So, to me, it means that he was the first man who ever told me about Vermont having slavery in this constitution. So, for him to run for office and then propose Prop Two and be part of that um, movement legislatively just shows that they are white allies and people who are really listening to the suffering of black people in their state, and they want to make legal changes. And back to your um, thing, Yusuf, about women ruling the world, I just watched Women King, and it was so amazing. And that's what we are, women kings. And Savannah, you know I adore you. You were in a purple dress, dressed in the colors of royalty when you were announced our new queen. So I'm just so honored that women have a mentor, a leader, um, and we can submit to such a woman. And that's what you are. So I'm grateful to um, just be allowed to experience abolition today and the Abolish Slavery National Network. It's an honor. And that's coming Thank you from so much. Former Miss Black Vermont. There is some things I wanted to share, some information. Uh, one is uh, I was reminded 
why the Justice Department was created and what its first mission was. The mm-hmm. Justice Department, the United States Justice Department's first mission was to protect black voting rights. Um, I'll read a little bit of this story. Uh, in the immediate wake of the Civil War, uh, Amos Ackerman, a New Hampshireite who had settled in Georgia in the 1840s, looked to the future, leaving the de- Democrats for the Republicans and prosecuting voter intimidation cases as, a US, cases as a U.S. district attorney in his adopted state. Reflecting on his decision to switch his allegiance to the party of Lincoln, Ackerman said, some of us who had adhered to the Confederacy felt it to be our duty when we were to participate in the politics of the Union to let Confederate ideals rule us no longer. Regarding the subjugation of one race by the other, as an opportunist of slavery. We were content that it should go to the grave in which slavery had been buried. Ackerman's work caught the attention of President Ulysses Grant, who promoted the Georgian to Attorney General in June of 1870. On July 1st of that year, the Department of Justice, created to handle the onslaught of post-war litigation, became an official government department with Ackerman at its helm. The focus of his 18-month tenure as the top nation's top law enforcement official was the protection of black voting rights from the systemic violence of the Ku Klux Klan, history repeats. Ackerman's Justice Department prosecuted and chased from southern states hundreds of Klan members. Historian William McFeely, in his biography of Ackerman, wrote, perhaps no attorney general since his tenure has been more vigorous in the prosecution of cases designed to protect the lives and rights of black Americans. There's a little bit more of it I want to read, but I want to open up for comments. No, go on, brother. Yeah, one go on. Other, it's... Go ahead, All right. Well, one this, of the other things this, that this, I heard. This is news to me, too. Yeah, I, I, I'm reminded that's why the Justice Department was created. That's what its first mission was. Like many other things that we enjoy as rights as citizens came directly because of the fight of black Americans against slavery. I also found out that Walt Whitman, the poet, was employed at the time as Ackerman's clerk in the Justice Department. Uh, he wow. shared the anxieties of his countrymen giving voice to this sentiment in his memorandum during the war. He equates black citizenship's rights in the former slave states as black domination, but little above the beast, and hopes it not remain a permanent condition. He posits if slavery had presented problems for the nation, how, if the mass of the blacks and freedom in the U.S. all through the ensuing century should present a yet more terrible and more deeply complicated problem. Uh, that was Walt Whitman saying, you know, what, what you had was one thing, but this thing is going to be worse. Mm. He saw what Someone was happening with Reconstruction. Right. Savannah. I was going to say Korean, someone is an English teacher forcing oh, kids to um, take a test about Paul, the poet somewhere. <laughs> All right. Wow. Uh, any, anyone else? Thanks for All sharing right. that, Matt. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, we're about learning on this program. Uh, we call it a master class, and that means we have to learn, too. <laughs> you know, right. we can learn together. So, yeah. I uh, think, um, 
I think what resonates with me when we when we look at especially like um, bills and laws, especially of the past, is like you know they're constantly trying to change and repeal some of the like I think one of the Texas GOP's platforms is to actually repeal the Voting Rights Act of 1965 um, and things like withdrawing from the UN, like. And that's what I was talking about when, you know, when I talk about, like, knowing, like, what next steps really need to look like because, you know, in Texas, you know, if we are successful in getting on the ballot and and they are successful in their platform, they are calling for here um, to change uh, the majority or the number of votes needed in order to get a constitutional amendment done. And so we have 256 counties here. Um, and they're moving that um, a majority vote be required in 191 out of the 256, which would be near impossible. Like, um, and so those are the types of things that, you know, like knowing, you know, what does this look like for us and, you know, being strategic and, and planning um, in what I call our off-season, right, which we really we know there's never really an off-season, even if you don't have uh, something on the ballot. You should always be right. thinking about, you know, um, how to make your campaign successful. So I'm always reading, you know, learning, and um, I look at both sides because that's how I learn, but um, – in learning, I'm learning, you know, in doing that, I'm learning that there's a very strong attack on um, people's rights and specifically voting rights. And so that should tell us, again, like how important it is uh, for us to exercise that and, you know, um, fight against that, too, because it's going to affect, you know, our campaigns as well. Thank you, Savannah. Um, I've got about six minutes left, so I want to give you an opportunity to tell our audience anything you want to tell them, please point them in the right direction when it comes to websites and stuff like that, uh, and any final commentary you might want to share with us. Yeah, so I want to encourage everybody to um, support the Freedom Five. So uh, Vermont's campaign is being led by Vermont Racial Justice Alliance. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook. Um, Alabama's campaign pretty much being run by Pastor Kenny Glasgow, um, but any information you need on Alabama, you can reach out to him on Facebook or go to um, abolishslavery.us, and someone from ASNN can reach back out to you. Um, Oregon um, Oasis, I'm not really sure about the website, but I know they are on Instagram, so any information on Oregon, you can be directed to Oasis. Um, and Tennessee, right, no exceptions, right. Tennessee. Riley, right, Riley Burton. And uh, Tennessee, Theta Murphy and Jeannie Alexander, uh, Free Hearts, um, Tennessee, um, are all a part of the No Exceptions Tennessee campaign. You can find them um, on social media platforms as well. Um, and a reminder, September 20th is National Voter Registration Day, so please encourage your folks, um, whether they're in one of those five states or not, to go out and register to vote. And not just register, but get to the polls. So we have eight weeks left, um, but let's go, people. Let's go um, and let's get our voices heard. Thank you so much, Savannah. Right. Uh, and thank you for being here with us today in the eight weeks of abolition week one. I figured I'd start it out with the ASNN represented. Through the weeks, we're going to have guests come in who represent each of the states and the federal uh, as we move towards the finish line. 
it's important that you get out and vote, register to vote. I don't care who you vote for, but go and vote to end slavery in these states. We may never get this opportunity again. Uh, so let's capitalize on it right now. And if all you can do is share some information to help people understand what this is all about, then do that. But get out and vote. All right, uh, Brother Yusuf, any commentary you want to make before we get into our yeah. panel? Yeah, just uh, to give the website for OASIS, that's Oregonians Against Slavery and Involuntary Servitude. That is OasisPrisonCoalition.org, OasisPrisonCoalition.org. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Savannah, <laughs> you know, for uh, all the work that you have done and continue to do. Uh, thank you to Mark and Corinne for calling in from Vermont. Uh, definitely thank all of our listeners. You know, it's great to be back in the saddle, brother. Yeah, it's good to be back. I'm only half a voice. I apologize, uh, but it's beyond my control. But I'm here, and we're going to get her done. We're going to go to the finish line That's and right. see the dawn, the beginning of a new era, for sure, for sure. Uh, sister for uh, sure. Corinne, did you have any final comments you wanted to make before we do our shout-outs to our sponsors and our Bridging the Gap segment? Well, on the 17th was um, Constitutional Day, so I wanted to say that, you know, shout out for people who want a new constitution. And, um, of course, this is God's work, and the way you can do God's work is by tithes and offerings. So why don't we offer um, funds to help, which I will be doing, and I'm excited to be doing God's work in that way. So um, blessings to you, blessings to you, Mark. Um, Savannah, you know I love you, girl. Um Matt. Awesome. Uh, we'll be back next week with week two of the eight weeks of abolition. Uh, we'll leave our guests a surprise. You'll see it in the promotional material that comes out next week. Uh, all right, Brother Yusuf, pass the mic to you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Don't go nowhere. We still got one more blessing for us. That's right. So we want to thank our sponsors and partners. That's Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. I am we, Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SEMA Urge, that's Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffley Abolitionist Center, where Max broadcasts from every Sunday, except when he's on the road, Prismatic Dreams, the Black Talk Radio Network, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash abolition today. And also subscribe to our Abolition Today page for all the news, information, and music you hear on the program. Abolition Today is available on all major podcast platforms, so check it out. Also remember to join the movement at AbolishSlavery.us to become part of the solution. Text END THE EXCEPTION, that's E-N-D-T-H-E-E-X-C-E-P-T-I-O-N, all one word. You want to text that to 52886 and follow the prompts that are going to send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause to the 13th Amendment. You'll also find on our Abolition Today page the petition from Move On to also sign in support of the 28th Amendment. Tonight's Bridging the Gap is going to be Ozzie Davis reading Frederick Douglass, Finding His Abolitionist Voice. And that's going to be followed up by Labby Sifri, Something Inside So Strong. So tune in next week for one of our uh, 
our next broadcast where we'll have another master class on slavery abolition. It will be week two of the eight weeks of abolition. So until then, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. All the anti-slavery meetings held in New Bedford, I promptly attended, my heart bounding at every true utterance against the slave system and every rebuke of its friends and supporters. In the summer of 1841, a grand anti-slavery convention was held in Nantucket under the auspices of Mr. Garrison and his friends. I determined on attending the meeting, though I had no thought of taking any part in any of its proceedings. But once there, I felt strongly moved to speak, and though I trembled in every limb, I spoke a few moments, describing my life as a slave. At the close of this great meeting, I was approached by Mr. John A. Collins, then the general agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and urged to become an agent of that society and publicly advocate its principles. I was reluctant to accept the position. I had not been quite three years from slavery and was honestly distrustful of my ability. Besides, publicity might discover me to my master. But Mr. Collins was not to be refused, and I finally consented to go out for three months. I traveled in the company of white abolitionists and lectured to large meetings. Many came, uh, no doubt from curiosity, to hear what a Negro could say in his own cause. I was generally introduced as a chattel, a thing, a piece of Southern property, the chairman assuring the audience that it could speak. As a fugitive slave lecturer, I faced many hostilities. My treatment in the use of public conveyances was extremely rough. On the railroads, there was a mean, dirty, and uncomfortable car set apart for Negro travelers called the Jim Crow car. Regarding this as the fruit of slaveholding prejudice and being determined to fight the spirit of slavery wherever I might find it, I resolved to avoid this car, though it sometimes required some courage to do so. I sometimes was soundly beaten by conductors and brakemen. At several of our meetings, my fellow abolitionists and I were mobbed, and several of us had our good clothes spoiled by evil-smelling eggs. On one occasion, we had barely begun to speak when a mob of about 60 of the roughest characters I had ever looked upon ordered us through its leader to be silent threatening us if we were not with violence. We attempted to dissuade them, but they had not come to parley, but to fight, and were well armed. They tore down the platform on which we stood and assaulted us. Undertaking to fight my way through the crowd with a stick which I caught up in the melee, I attracted the fury of the mob which laid me prostrate on the ground under a torrent of blows, leaving me thus with my right hand broken and in a state of unconsciousness, the mobocrats hastily mounted their horses and rode off. I was soon raised up and nursed and bandaged. But as the bones broken were not properly set, my hand has never recovered its natural strength and dexterity. During the first three or four months of my work as an anti-slavery agent, my speeches were almost exclusively made up of narrations of my own personal experience as a slave. Let us have the facts, said the people. But I was now reading and thinking New views of the subject were being presented to my mind. It did not entirely satisfy me to narrate wrongs. I felt like denouncing them. I could not always curb my moral indignation for the perpetrators of slave-holding villainy, 
long enough for a circumstantial statement of the facts, which I felt almost sure everybody know. People won't believe you ever were a slave, Frederick, if you keep on this way, my friends told me. It is not best that you seem too learned. These friends were not altogether wrong in their advice. And still I must speak just the word that seemed to me to be the word to be spoken by me. At last, the apprehended trouble came. People doubted if I had ever been a slave. They said I did not talk like a slave, look like a slave, or act like a slave, and that they believed I had never been south of Mason and Dixon's line. I decided to write out the leading facts connected with my experience in slavery, giving names of persons, places, and dates, thus putting it in the power of any who doubted to ascertain the truth or falsehood of my story. This book, entitled Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, was published in Boston in 1845. William Lloyd Garrison wrote the preface to my book. My book soon became known in Maryland, and I had reason to believe that an effort would be made to recapture me. I was persuaded by my friends to leave the country and was sent as an agent to Great Britain. The object of my labors in Great Britain was the concentration of the moral and religious sentiment of its people against American slavery. To this end, I visited and lectured in nearly all the large towns and cities of the United Kingdom and enjoyed many favorable opportunities for observation and information. Some notion may be formed of the difference in my feelings and circumstances while abroad from a letter I wrote to Mr. Garrison on January 1st, 1846. I live a new life. The warm and generous cooperation extended me by the friends of my despised race, the prompt and liberal manners with which the press has rendered me its aid, the glorious enthusiasm with which thousands have flocked to hear the cruel wrongs of my downtrodden and long-enslaved fellow countrymen portrayed, the deep sympathy for the slave and the strong abhorrence of the slaveholders everywhere evinced, the cordiality with which members and ministers of various religious bodies and of various shades of religious opinion have embraced me and lent me their aid, the kind hospitality constantly proffered me by persons of the highest rank in society, the spirit of freedom that seems to animate all with whom I come in contact, and the entire absence of everything that looks like prejudice against me on account of the color of my skin, contrast so strongly with my long and bitter experience in the United States that I look with wonder and amazement on the transition.
Hi, my name is Jeanette Smith. I am a slavery abolitionist. Some of you may know me. I'm doing this recording because I would like to ask if any of you can help with some financial assistance. Max and Yusuf do not like to ask for money, so I would like to ask on their behalf because they and other abolitionists pull money out of their own pockets, and this is so important. So if you can help, you can find the information at the top of the Facebook page for Abolition Today. Thank you. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton.